BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. 33.3 percentage points. That is the margin in the real clear politics polling average as of right now that Donald Trump is leading the 2024 Republican presidential primary field. It is worth noting that this margin has stayed remarkably consistent, really for the past number of months, going back to the Alvin Bragg indictment in New York City in late March into early April was when you saw this tremendous bump, this rally around the flag effect to the former president. That has not subsided at all. And uncomfortable, though it may be to say, for unambiguous, quite public DeSantis fans such as myself, Ron DeSantis's polling has simply not budged very much at all since his announcement in late May. We are now two months after the Twitter rollout, the Twitter Spaces event with Elon Musk and David Sachs. And Ron DeSantis's national polling is in that real clear politics average, 18.5%. He's still in second place pretty firmly. He's still in second place in most of the early states. He's comfortably in second place in Iowa. South Carolina has actually been some polling that some of the South Carolinians in particular, actually former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, might be nipping at Ron DeSantis's heels there. New Hampshire, which is not necessarily Ron DeSantis's best state in general, The margin there kind of has been fluctuating a little bit. But the point is, the point is here in late July that the race looks an awful lot like it did two to two and a half months ago or so. And, you know, it's worth hitting the rewind button a little bit. Take us back even earlier to the end of 2022 in the aftermath of the midterms rolling into the earlier part of 2023. And, you know, back then. I'm I'm talking here about November, December of last year, January, really even into February of this year. I saw a tweet earlier this week, and it kind of reminds you that the the margin, the delta difference between Trump and DeSantis in the national polling back at that time, well, well before Ron DeSantis was a formally announced presidential candidate, was quite narrow. It was very narrow at times. I mean, I think back to the immediate aftermath of the midterm elections last fall. I mean, Ron DeSantis won here in Florida, 19.4%. We've talked about that a lot on this show. We've talked about the Florida model, the tremendous things that he has done here in this state. And we've talked about all of that. Donald Trump, of course, he handpicked a lot of candidates last fall who lost in very high profile races. Folks like Herschel Walker running in Georgia, Doug Mastriano, a truly horrific candidate, Doug Mastriano running in Pennsylvania, folks like that. 
And around that time, it really did look like the door was wide open for someone to hop in there. And by the time that DeSantis formally announced in late May, that window had already begun to close. So it's worth talking a little bit about why that has happened and what needs to change, what needs to happen from here for Ron DeSantis to find himself right back in the thick of things, really back to the polling that he was at again before he was even a formally announced candidate. So in retrospect, thinking about the way that this has operated, a few things just totally leap right off the page. First is, I think Ron DeSantis wanted his timeline to be his timeline. He, you know, like a lot of type A types, like a lot of people who are who are ambitious, who are driven for higher office. He wanted to control the X, Y, Z of his own timeline and his own narrative to cross the T's, to dot the I's, to do everything on his own timetable. The problem was that the former president was simply not having that. You can go back to even, to even before the election itself, which is when Donald Trump first started whipping out these kind of cringe nicknames, the Ron the Sanctimonious stuff. It literally started before the election. And boy, did it start to accelerate in the aftermath of the election when I think the Trump polling operation and the folks in Mar-a-Lago began to see what I just discussed, that the Delta, the difference between Trump and DeSantis had really severely narrowed. And in some polling, I think of this one state poll that I saw last fall from here in Florida that had DeSantis beating Trump in a hypothetical head-to-head in Florida, 60 to 40 by 20 points. So, In the end of last year into this year, for months and months and months, Trump just viciously attacked the governor of Florida, whether it was on Truth Social, whether it was on these videos that his surrogates would put out on Twitter and various other forms of media, including rallies, because former President Trump, of course, was already an announced candidate for 2024. He had that less than impressive speech, I guess you might call it, in mid-November, shortly after the election, back at Mar-a-Lago. So for months and months and months, Trump came out swinging, and unfortunately, there was really nothing to be said from the formal DeSantis operation. And the the line here makes sense from one perspective, which is that he's not a candidate yet. He had a legislative session to follow in Florida, and it was an extremely productive. It was a it was a outright prolific legislative session. We could go back and recite that list of accomplishments if we really need to, but that's neither here nor there for present purposes. And Again, that made sense because there was no formal campaign apparatus. But one thing that I've that I had come to mind that I've seen a couple of others talk about is alternatively, you could have actually had a formal exploratory committee launched at the beginning of the legislative session. And this this alternative body, this institution, this exploratory committee could exist for the sole purpose of pushing back against all of these BS nonsensical garbage attacks that were coming from Trump world around that time. I'm thinking here about George W. Bush in 2000, who actually did the exact same thing. He did not announce his run for president that year until after the 2000 Texas legislative session. But 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 he had an exploratory committee that was out months in advance to push back against some of the attacks that were coming from John McCain in particular and some of the other presidential candidates from that year. So that's one thing that I think Ron DeSantis, in, in retrospect, kind of dropped the ball. If we're, if we're really just being frank and honest here, that would have been a very wise and prudent move in retrospect. The window was there. The timing, unfortunately, was not quite there. I think that could have been handled better. So that brings us to the real question, which is what could Ron DeSantis do from here to start to turn this thing around, especially as some other candidates like Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, are starting to pump a ton of money onto the airwaves. Tim Scott has moved 
into third place in most national polling. He, he is liked by a lot of evangelicals on the ground there in Iowa. South Carolina is, of course, his home state. So what can Ron DeSantis do? Well, a lot of it, I, I'm happy to report, and this is all public knowledge, it seems like he's actually already doing. So there was a large NBC report that came out last week, and it seems like the DeSantis operation is shifting away from two of their main rhetorical places to focus on, which are Florida and the fight against wokeism, and starting to expand to a more national message. And that, above all, That above all, as someone who has been a a very public on the record fan of my governor, Ron DeSantis, that above all is what I would like to see is a shift away from kind of a bullet point list of what every Floridian worth his or her salt would say is an incredibly impressive record and track record of accomplishments here in Florida towards a national. And here's the key part of all an inspirational, unifying national message. Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign slogan is, quote, the great American comeback, which in theory sounds good. I would have liked for something maybe of like a return to sanity, restore civilizational sanity, but that is good. But it's time to define that. What is the great American comeback? What does that entail? What does that mean for Joe and Betty out in Missouri or Arkansas who are struggling to put bread on the table at night? What does that mean in concrete terms for the millions of Americans who are suffering from a wide open border with mass immigration, both illegal and legal? And we have these elites who are worrying about the war in Ukraine, all this stuff. So what does the great American comeback actually mean for Joe and Betty there in Missouri? That is the kind of thing that I would like to see. Look. At the end of the day, this thing is still really early. We have our first Republican debate coming up in less than a month now in Wisconsin. It remains to be seen whether Donald Trump will even participate in that particular debate. So there's going to be a huge, huge window of opportunity there for Ron DeSantis on a debate stage to try to reclaim this narrative. Of course, Donald Trump has likely two more pending criminal indictments coming, one from Jack Smith, the federal special counsel, one from Fulton County, Georgia, with respect to those infamous phone calls with then Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So we will see what happens. We will see what happens on that front. But for now, for now, I think we can soberly say that these first two months of the Ronald Sanders presidential campaign has not gone according to plan. But those people who are saying, on the other hand, that he is out. I mean, give me a break, dude. It is July of 2023. The pro-DeSantis super PAC never backed down, has God knows how much money. He's got a great operation on the ground in Iowa. So yes, changes have to be made, no doubt about that, but there is still time to do it. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Josh Hammer Show. So last month, the Supreme Court killed affirmative action. Way overdue but worth celebrating nonetheless. No more will university admissions offices be allowed to explicitly discriminate on the basis of race. It is really astounding when you think about it, actually, that it took until the year 2023 
for the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, we're talking here almost 70 years after the desegregation decision, Brown versus Board of Education in the middle of the 1950s. It's astounding that it took this long for them to say that, oh, not only can you not discriminate on the basis of race when it comes to busing in schools, but actually when it comes to universities and higher ed, the admissions offices can't do the same thing. I mean, it really is astounding when you think about it, but it is very much worth celebrating anyway. Remains to be seen exactly how we enforce this going forward. No doubt we will have any number of true believer university admissions officers who try to use race without actually saying it. If there's any silver lining to what this post affirmative action regime from a policing standpoint might look like. The silver lining is that these admissions officers who go wayward will actually be personally liable. They'll be personally liable for monetary damages if a plaintiff, in particular probably a white, Asian, or Jewish person, can demonstrate that the admissions officer discriminated against him or her on the basis of race. The reason for that is very simple, which is that the universities cannot indemnify university admissions officers based on conduct that is illegal. So we will see, but that does raise the obvious question, and we explored this a little bit in our last episode with Chris Rufo, that raises the obvious question, is that when it comes to the issue of race in America and in post-George Floyd, post-BLM riots, race perhaps above all, with the possible exception of gender ideology, but race has really become kind of the tip of the spear of the intersectional, anti-racist, Ibram X. Kendi, woke ideology. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a step back. You know, my grandfather, who was a lawyer himself, he was a government attorney in the 1960s, and he was actually there for Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech. You know, what did Martin Luther King say in that speech? Well, he said a lot of things. But the line that we all remember is when he said that he longed for a day when black Americans would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. To say that we have moved far from that would be a dramatic understatement. It is positively dystopian how much the forces of illiberal leftism, which is how I would define wokeism, it is positively dystopian just how much of an emphasis they put on race. The Ibram X. Kendi solution to race in America is the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. said there on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which my grandfather heard in person. The Ibram X. Kendi solution to race in America is that the remedy for past discrimination is current discrimination, and the remedy for current discrimination is future discrimination. We saw this Ibram X. Kendi so-called anti-racist claptrap play out in Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's dissent in the affirmative action case, which Justice Clarence Thomas, the nation's greatest living American, took an absolute sledgehammer to in his concurrence. Man, did he utterly eviscerate that. But there is another aspect of our society in which the left has made race of paramount importance and has actually even been engaging in discriminatory conduct. 
Now, it's happened in a slightly less litigated aspect of our society, somewhat more outside of governmental purview. And I speak here, of course, about our DEI regime. DEI, of course, referring to so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has proliferated all throughout academia and all throughout corporate America. There are now roving diversity crat commissars, you might say. Diversity crat being the wonderful term of art coined by Heather McDonald of Manhattan Institute. DEI commissars and diversity crats now basically exist in Title IX offices all throughout university campuses, Title VI offices, in the corporate boardroom. They're right there in the HR department. And their whole reason for existing is not necessarily to promote diversity. Their reason for existing, the reason these DEI apparatuses exist in academia, in corporate America, is to try to do exactly that which Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, the two universities who were sued in the affirmative action cases, it's the same thing that they were trying to do which is to sculpt, whether it's faculties in academia or employee rosters in corporate America, with a racial breakdown that matches some arbitrary conception of what is quote-unquote equitable. What that means, in tangible speak, is that these DEI offices are engaged in the same sort of loathsome discriminatory conduct again, against primarily white, Asian, and Jewish Americans, that we just said was illegal in the affirmative action context. Now, I'm pleased to report that there have actually been some positive anecdotes in the fight, the pushback against DEI. So just last Thursday, Tyrion Steinbach, who was Stanford Law School's DEI dean, she found herself right, right at the center of that horrific, horrific episode at Stanford Law School back in March that we devoted a whole episode on this show to unpack for you involving Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan. She was the infamous dean who spoke of the juice being worth the squeeze, if you remember all those headlines. Well, she's gone. And thank God she's gone because she is an utter embarrassment to her profession and she should have been fired immediately. But four months later, we'll still take it. Technically, Stanford says she, quote unquote, resigned, but, you know, we know how that thing goes. And not only did Tyrion Steinbach, quote unquote, resign from Stanford Law School, a couple of very interesting letters were actually sent as well. So a couple of weeks ago, 13 Republican state attorneys general led by Kansas and Tennessee sent a letter To the CEOs of all of the Fortune 100 companies, they tried to, quote, remind them of their obligations as employers under federal and state law to refrain from discriminating on the basis of race, whether under the label of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or otherwise. And they cited Title VII. They they cited federal law. And the impetus for this letter, again, was the affirmative action cases, the basic argument is that what happened in the affirmative action cases should happen here as well. Similarly, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, 
He sent a very, very similar letter to 51 of the largest global and national law firms, putting them on notice that these, quote, same principles that the court relied upon in the affirmative action case applied to DEI in a law firm setting as well. So the pushback against DEI, thank God, is finally here. Do not be duped by the title DEI. It's not about diversity. It is about a race-centric worldview, ultimately redounding to the very kind of noxious racial determinism that this country rejected in its second founding as a result of the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments. That is what these DEI commissars want to bring us back to. We should reject it emphatically. Thank God it's already starting to happen. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Josh Hammer Show. So on Monday, Israel's Knesset, which is their parliament, it is their legislature, finally, finally passed a sliver of judicial reform. Let's step back. In November of last year, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud was re-elected in the Knesset with 64 of the 120 seats. That sounds like a narrow majority, but given how many elections Israel has had since 2019 or so, that actually was considered a large sweeping win. Again, hard to believe, but that's just the context. One of the leading issues that Benjamin Netanyahu campaigned on and his Likud party campaigned on, and their allies in some of the even more right-wing parties, was reform to the Supreme Court of Israel. Why did they talk about reform to the Supreme Court of Israel? Well, we've discussed it on this show a little bit. Israel's an interesting country from a political and constitutional perspective for the very simple reason that they, they do not have a constitution. There is no written constitution in Israel. The state was declared independent in May of 1948 by David Ben-Gurion, who became the first president. They had a declaration of independence, but they never had a constitution. And they never had a constitution for the very simple reason that the founding fathers of Israel knew that they would not be able to agree on a lot of the big questions, so they've kind of just continually punted the can down the road for decades and decades and decades, and here we are, the country just celebrated its 75th anniversary a few months ago, and there's still no constitution. But we do know that Israel was roughly based on the UK, on the British model of governance. We know that for multiple reasons, the most obvious being that before Israel was independent— It was the British mandate for Palestine, meaning that it was British territory. It was British controlled following the victory in World War I 
and the European powers carving up of the Middle East, the Brits controlled Israel before Israel was Israel. They didn't always do the best job of it. In fact, the Brits tragically closed the state of Israel to a lot of Jewish immigration during the Holocaust when European Jews needed a place to flee to more than any other time in history. There's many just and proper criticisms of how the Brits comported themselves during that time. But the point is, the founding fathers of Israel based roughly their system of governance on the British model. And in Britain, you do not have a clean, quote-unquote, separation of powers in an American context. Britain also does not have a single written constitution. There are various documents that over the centuries have come to comprise the English constitution. But in the UK, parliament is supreme. In the UK, there is parliamentary supremacy. There is a Supreme Court, there is a judiciary, but it is unambiguously subordinate to the parliament. That is what Israel had for the first four and a half decades, roughly, after the state was declared independent in 1948. It worked perfectly fine. But fast forward to the 1990s, and the former chief justice, the president of the Supreme Court of Israel, a man by the name of Aaron Barak, a radical leftist to his core, pronounced a quote-unquote constitutional revolution whereby the Supreme Court magically and without any kind of written authorization from the Knesset, from the parliament, radically according to Aaron Barak's constitutional revolution, the Supreme Court was to have all sorts of new powers. For starters, via their control over the Judicial Selection Committee, they would have veto power over their own successors. They choose their own successors. They can also, under this constitutional revolution, nullify any law, any policy, or even any parliamentary appointment, any cabinet minister... For any reason whatsoever, this cannot be emphasized enough how radical this is compared with the American system of judicial review or even compared with the English system of judicial review. Judicial review in the United States is fairly straightforward. When you have someone who sues and the federal courts hear a case, Well, what is the person suing on the grounds of? They are suing because the plaintiff will claim that his or her rights were violated under a written law, under the U.S. Constitution, a federal or state statute, or a regulation. The latter is a bit more complicated because of a misguided 1980s case called Chevron that will be fodder for a future discussion on this show. The point is that you get into federal courts and the courts hear a case because there is a purported or alleged infringement of an actual law. So the affirmative action case that we just discussed is a great example of this. What are the Asian American plaintiffs in Students for Fair Admission, what what did they claim? What did they say that Harvard and UNC were doing? They said they were violating their 
Title VI and 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause statutory and constitutional rights to true, genuine equality under the law. And those are the grounds, specifically the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, on which Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the court's majority opinion finally, finally declaring that affirmative action in higher education is no more. That is simply not how it works in Israel, and it's not how it's worked for the past roughly 30 years. The court over there will literally strike down laws and the prime minister's appointment of a finance minister, national security minister, whatever, simply because a majority of the court says it is unreasonable. Can you imagine the United States Supreme Court doing something like that? I mean, many of us on the right have actually alleged that many liberal Supreme Court justices, folks like Sonia Sotomayor, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, many of us actually have alleged that they are effectively doing that, but at a bare minimum, at least they feel compelled to purport to cite something. The first, fourth, 14th Amendment, whatever. Or, you know, in the, in the infamous case of Griswold versus Connecticut of 1965, the emanations of the penumbras of the Bill of Rights, whatever. It could be transparent sophistry, but the point is they're citing something. Again, that's not how it has worked in Israel for the past 30 years. In fact, earlier this year, after Prime Minister Netanyahu, once he was back into power, he tapped Arye Derry, who is the leader of the Shas party, that is the Orthodox Sephardic party over in Israel. He's he pled guilty years ago to a tax law violation. He served his time and all that. This was two decades ago. And Derry is now the leader of an important party in Netanyahu's coalition. So Netanyahu tapped him for minister of health and minister of the interior. And the court said no. I, I, again, that is literally the equivalent here of President Joe Biden nominating someone for head of the CDC, U.S. Department of the Interior, and a 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court being like, eh, no, we don't like it, try again. I mean, that's insanity. That is pure insanity. So again, Netanyahu and his allied parties ran on these issues. They ran on reforming the judiciary, which is something that people have been taking note of for decades. The late Robert Bork, The D.C. Circuit judge, the eminent antitrust scholar who was infamously tapped by Ronald Reagan to a Supreme Court seat in 1987, but was nuked in a disgusting, vicious character assault by the late Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts and, yes, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware. Bob Bork noticed how crazy the Aaron Barak constitutional revolution was. He wrote a whole chapter on it, actually, in one of his books. It's like 20 years ago now. So this has been an issue on the Israeli right for a very long time. Earlier this year, the Netanyahu government tried to pass a suite of judicial reforms that had a lot of elements to it. It would pare down the ability of the so-called attorney general, who is nothing like an actual attorney general. The attorney general there is basically a roving one-person appointee who can veto any act of the government. I mean, the whole thing is just utterly crazy. Utterly crazy. But one of the many, one of the many aspects of the judicial reforms that the government tried to pass earlier this year 
was overturning this so-called reasonableness criterion for overturning government laws, policies, and appointments. In other words, one of the many elements of the judicial reform package that was debated vociferously earlier this year in Israel was to end the idea that in order for a court to overturn an act of law, all the court had to do was say it is unreasonable in their grand philosophical musings. Put another way, according to this one provision, in order to overturn a law or a policy, you had to actually cite something. You could cite one of Israel's basic laws, which are these... 10 to 15 roughly more preeminent laws that are called basic laws because they are what the country may ultimately codify as the beginnings of its own constitution. You you could even cite that as a grounds for striking down a law, but you can't just say it's unreasonable. I mean, is there anyone in the world who even faintly understands these issues, who has any grasp whatsoever of judicial review of how comparative constitutional structure work, who could possibly object to that? Now, some of the parts of the judicial reform package earlier this year, by my own admission, were a little more controversial. I I personally supported effectively all of it. I would have to think if there was any of it that I objected to, but there was an override clause where a bare 61 seat majority in the parliament in the Knesset could override a decision. I I thought that was justifiable for reasons that are not worth getting into. The point is, after the past few months of a break, Netanyahu brought back just the reasonableness criterion. That was all that Israel passed on Monday. The Netanyahu government tried to negotiate in good faith with these anarchists, and that is what they are, with the anarchists who have been wildly, wildly protesting in the streets of Tel Aviv, on the highways, who even shut down Ben-Gurion Airport. That is Israel's one major international airport. These protesters even shut down the airport for a day when they tried to pass this broader suite of packages earlier this year. Billions and billions of dollars of Israel's vaunted high-tech industry, the venture capital funds the entrepreneurs, that capital fled. Netanyahu backed down and tried to negotiate in good faith. And yet again, the protesters are at it. There was this ridiculous march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to show them who's boss and try to fight for democracy. Here's the grand irony of all grand ironies. There's at least two grand ironies here. The reforms, and especially the reasonableness reform, would make Israel's system of governance more democratic by vesting more authoritative power in the hands of the actual democratic branch of government, the Knesset, the parliament. It would strip some of this massive, massive, highly, highly discretionary power from the talons of this Supreme Court of Israel, which only has any authority in the first place because of Knesset past statute, because again, this is a system of parliamentary supremacy. There's no inherent Supreme Court to begin with. The entire court is a creation of the parliament. 
So that is one of the massive grand ironies of all. It makes a lot more sense when you realize that when the left screams the top of their lungs about democracy, they're not talking about democracy. They're talking about liberalism. Another massive irony here is that these same leftist idiots, especially in the United States, who are kvetching, who are complaining on and on about what Israel is doing, they're trying to pack the Supreme Court here. What they are trying to do to the U.S. Supreme Court here is give them pure, unadulterated power. I mean, the hypocrisy is utterly, utterly mind-blowing. Do we stand for democracy or do we stand for juristocracy? Are you judicial supremacists or are you not? Wild stuff. All of this, of course, happening in a time when the Iranian regime, which consistently vows to eradicate Israel and kill all the Jews, is racing ever closer toward a nuclear bomb. We have all these IDF military reservists who are threatening not to serve. It's appalling stuff. It's appalling stuff. But the government should be commended for seeing this through and at least, at least, gain this one tiny sliver passed. Josh Hammer Show. Welcome back. Due to popular demand, we are unrolling a segment today called Hammer Time. We're going to blow through a lot of headlines and get some quick takes. Here we go. It's Ah! Hammer Time. Go! The Elon Musk X fiasco. So, what the hell is Elon Musk doing with this X thing? Now, apparently, Elon Musk, I read, has had a a bit of an infatuation with branding things as X for a while now. Apparently, he tried this back when he was primarily focused at Tesla. He tried it at Tesla. I think it was shot down by the marketing department. I don't really know the internal deliberations there, but he's had this weird obsession with branding things X for a while. Personally, I think it looks stupid. Why would you do that? Why would you throw out... 15 years or so of branding. I mean, people see the blue bird. They know it's Twitter. What the hell is X? I mean, are they going to rebrand the guy? Are they going to change the name of the company? I mean, is it, are we not going to have tweets? Are we going to have X's? I think most of us do have X's. We call them ex-girlfriends and ex-boyfriends. So uh, totally ridiculous. On the other hand, Elon Musk is a bit of a weirdo. And you kind of have to be a little bit of a weirdo to build up that level of wealth over the years. So, you know, maybe he's onto something. Maybe we shouldn't write him off, but definitely pretty, pretty weird. Leftist outrage over Texas using razor wire to protect the border. So most recently, the Biden Department of Justice has announced that it is suing Governor Greg Abbott and the Lone Star State for their use of wire in the Rio Grande to deter illegal immigration. So It is simply a fact of our system that not just the federal government, but the state governments are sovereign. And as a sovereign entity, the state of Texas has every right to exclude from entering illegally whoever the heck it wants to exclude. And it doubly has a responsibility to do that when the federal government completely lets its guard down and allows this unprecedented invasion that has happened over the course of the first Biden term, as we have seen. So good for Texas for doing what it needs to do to secure its sovereignty. These folks who are griping and 
caviling about razor wire. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you dudes did not do a heck of a lot of good either. I mean, I mean I, I'm old enough to remember the kitty detention facilities back under the Obama administration when it came to Ill- illegal immigration. So save your freaking crocodile tears, dude. Greta Thunberg arrested for blocking traffic at climate protest in Sweden. I, I mean, Greta Thunberg, she's still a thing. I mean, she burst onto the scene when she was, what, like 15, 16 years old. This was like four years ago-ish or so now. Haven't heard a whole lot from Greta recently. You kind of have to think that she was tapped from the folks in Davos, from the World Economic Forum. They probably just hand-selected some aesthetically, vaguely pleasing, vaguely articulate girl to peddle their agenda. I, I, I cannot believe that I'm still seeing headlines from Greta Thunberg, and that's basically my only hot take on that woke outrage over non-jewish people playing jewish roles in oppenheimer film well first of all i look forward to seeing oppenheimer i've not seen it yet obviously i mean who isn't a big fan of christopher nolan all that he has done with the batman series and prestige back in the day inception i mean the guy is just a utterly brilliant filmmaker look forward to seeing it and frankly when it comes to non-jewish actors playing jews in oppenheimer who the hell cares if you are able to act the role and you are good at it, then why do I care what your ethnic or religious background happens to be? Personally, I'm actually a big fan of the Amazon Prime show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is a very Jewish show. The lead actress in that show who plays the eponymous Mrs. Maisel, not even Jewish. So truly do not care. Hollywood writer's strike. Well, Look, I mean, Hollywood has been suffering the past few years. The the COVID pandemic certainly did not help matters there. On the other hand, the Barbenheimer combo of Barbie and Oppenheimer, I think it was 150 to $160 million or so in, in box office ticket receipts just from this opening weekend, shattering a lot of expectations and shattering a lot of records as well. So, you know, maybe Hollywood is slowly making a comeback. Now the strike is not good for, for fans. Hopefully they can get it together there. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to Apple or Spotify to leave your comments and five-star ratings. 